when you go to a therapist's place, it's sometimes easier to, you know, leave the work you do there. You leave it there. And then you exit and then you go home and then you can sort of forget about it a little bit. <laughs> but when you see a therapist in your living room, it's not as easy to forget about it. Hi there. This is It's Complicated. I'm Reese Cox, and yes, that is the sweet sound of birds chirping and rain gently falling in the background. Today I'm speaking to you from a little house way out in the countryside, where for the time being I'm taking my social distancing game to a whole new level. And while I've been out here, I've been doing a lot of thinking about telecommunicating, something that we've all become at least somewhat familiar with in recent times. And if you lived anywhere on planet Earth, you've probably experienced at least a few COVID-related changes in recent months. Maybe you're still waiting for your job to come back, or you've grown accustomed to working online, and maybe you have restricted visits with friends and family members. By now, the novelty of wearing a mask has probably long worn off, but you likely still wear one when buying groceries or doing other essential things in public, at least we hope so. And you're likely well-versed in using platforms like Zoom or Skype or Telegram, or at least you've heard a lot about them. And if you see a therapist, or if you are a therapist, platforms such as these have probably taken a pretty important role recently. Before 2020, for so many of us, seeing or being a therapist meant getting in a car, or taking a train, or riding a bike to an actual place, sitting in an actual waiting room, maybe even with other people, and actually talking to a therapist in person while sitting just a meter or two away. But since COVID arrived, the world of psychotherapy has made a more or less unanimous shift to telecommunication out of necessity. This is significant for a number of reasons, including that teletherapy has had its critics ever since its earliest days, and sometimes it's been viewed as a lesser alternative to in-person therapies. Yet now, love it or not, there just isn't an ethical alternative so long as COVID remains a risk. So, as therapists and clients embrace online sessions in mass for the first time around the world, many are discovering unforeseen changes in the nature and depth of communication during sessions. For many, the change in format has presented new doors and pathways previously unseen, and today on the show we'll hear from both therapists and people who see them about their experience working remotely and what that shift has meant for them. I'll be sharing interviews with two therapists, one of which is a clinical psychologist, the other a psychoanalyst, as well as an interview with a client on why she has come to prefer working remotely. And finally, I'll share a wonderful recording sent in by a listener where she narrates her experience treating PTSD as she moves from in-person to teletherapy. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's not forget It's Complicated is a web directory making it extra simple to find the right therapist no matter what kind of therapy you're looking for. It's Complicated offers a safe space to connect with a practitioner. Please pay us a visit online at complicated.life. And if you like the content you get here on the podcast, you can find more interesting and insightful information at our blog. That's blog.complicated.life. To begin, I'd like to share a conversation with a regular guest on the podcast, that being It's Complicated co-founder and clinical psychologist, Johanna Schwinson, where we talk, amongst other things, about the unexpectedly intimate nature of listening to a client over headphones and speaking while each of you are sitting in your respective homes. Now, let's have a listen. Hey, Johanna, I know that you've had some experience working online as a therapist previously, but I'm curious about the experience of so many clients who were just recently in person and are now online. How do you think your clients are adapting to this change? They have actually 
been very quick to to adapt and quick to see also the benefits. When you say benefits, what do you mean? Both convenience that they are meeting with me at times that wouldn't be possible before. They don't have to travel to the office. They can slide in a session before going into work or it can be right before going to bed. So so there's just more flexibility. But then they've also realized and I've realized that probably because some of the visual cues are are lacking, this actually makes for a deeper listening experience. It could both be that our listening then compensates what our eyes are are lacking in in information, but it could also be the fact that I have their voices in my ears. Usually, like I'm I'm always using um, headphones, and they have my voice in their ears, and this just makes for a quite intimate and a deep listening experience. When I think about the way that a therapist kind of operates in a traditional way. I think about how much reading the room comes into play, reading somebody's body language and the way that subtle cues can kind of show a a significant detail. Do you find that those details still come through in the voice? Of course, there are some things that will be lost by by doing online therapy, but but there are also visual things that are gained um, because I, I get insight into into their rooms into their apartments into areas of their life that I wouldn't have access to and wouldn't think of asking about you know like maybe they have a cat that is really important to them that I would otherwise not have heard about but you know all of a sudden (laughs) it uh face bombs are video call that's really interesting though about what the detail that you were just giving about um being able to see the places where they live, or at least the places where they choose to do the therapy. Uh, does having that kind of new visual information build a broader picture for you? It does. And and I hadn't even thought about that. Like, I hadn't thought about that gain. Um, but I, now I see it so clearly that, that, that for some of my clients, keeping a tidy home is just, like, really important to them. And and they might get a lot out of that, like therapeutically. Um, for others, it's important to them, but they have such a hard time with it. And and this shines through and becomes part of the conversation because they'll be making little remarks and like, oh, excuse the mess. And, um, you know, and then that becomes a source of information and uh, an avenue that we wouldn't otherwise I think maybe ever have gone down. So it is definitely, it is definitely quite meaningful information. Another thing that I wanted to bring up is the cost of therapy, which is something that we've talked about on the podcast before is a big hurdle for a lot of people. I'm curious to ask what your sort of take on this is in your practice. If a therapist is not, is able to operate from home, should it cost the same and so on and so forth? This is one of the topics that splits people so so some people feel it should cost the same and some people are like think that it's worth less and therefore they also price themselves lower or yeah set a lower session fee and it of course also depends on whether the therapists still are paying for an office space maybe they're even doing their online sessions from their office. I, I have many colleagues who 
who go to work and and do online sessions from their office space. And then it also just depends on whether, you know, they 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 spend the same amount of time preparing, taking notes afterwards, whether their therapy practices otherwise stay the same, because that would, yeah, build a case for keeping the session fee the same. And something that's a relatively new learning for me is like I definitely do see online therapy as it's different from in-person therapy but I would not say that it's less worth I mean of course a lot more rigorous research has to be done to map out what the actual differences are but my subjective experience is that it's worth a lot I'm curious as you were probably quickly realizing at some point a few months ago that your job was going to move basically entirely online, did you feel differently about what you had to do? Did you feel like your job was changing? I guess just doing online therapy brought me even more down from the from, from the pedestal I hate being um, put on, like as a therapist, where people are like, ooh, you're a therapist. You must then know everything there is to know about the human psyche about the workings of my brain and and I think that's dangerous uh quite dangerous actually if therapists like enjoy being in that position you know what I mean and so when they see me as an online therapist doing therapy from my own home I think I think they see a more vulnerable person. I think they see a more relatable person. I mean, I think I am the kind of therapist who is more relatable than others and less office-like, but I think even more so when I'm practicing from my own home. Interesting. So it kind of helps you to sort of further unseat yourself from this performative image of a therapist where you're like this sort of masterful character or something that's removed from everyone everyone else's sort of problems. Exactly, yeah. And it reminds me a very powerful thing I was once told by a client many years ago, actually, was uh, that they so had enjoyed seeing me um, uh, facilitate a conversation, like at a meetup. I, I did a, an open meetup because it made them realize like how much I am just another human who gets flushed uh and gets like flustered from from speaking publicly and that this just was very like useful for him to to realize and like have a think about and I'm just wondering if more of my clients are are getting this uh yeah impression of me now right and I know that that in and of itself, um, you know, the debate around self-disclosure is, of course, a, quite a big one um, amongst therapists. How much should you give away about yourself as a therapist? Does it do harm? Does it do good? You know, if you are going to do it, yeah. when should you do it? I like this take of like, yeah, sure, but also don't forget you're still a person. I mean, you still have to, you know, do an online session when you look around and there's like, dirty clothes on the bed or whatever, and people just have to deal with the fact yeah. that you're a normal person as well. Yeah. You know? And I imagine this will be a huge intersection or a huge overlap of, of uh, research that needs to be done, mm -hmm. like self-disclosure and online therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if there's any um, 
PhD or grad students listening to the podcast, take that as your cue. <laughs> this is very <laughs> important research for our current or, times. Or, or, or if there's anyone who, uh, who wants to offer me a, a, <laughs> a position, <laughs> I'll be your PhD student. <laughs> On that note, huh. this is uh, you know, important for future research. Another question. Um, mm -hmm. So we kind of touched on this in the earlier questions, but in simple terms, are there any unforeseen benefits that you've noticed? Yes, for sure. I mean, for, for some people doing therapy from the comfort of their own homes, and, and that is, of course, if their home brings them comfort and containment, this just means beating less around the bushes and, and having less of a barrier to speaking openly and thereby being better able to create an, an alliance. And I mean, that's really the number one most important factor for successful therapy is the therapeutic alliance. And so I think because of this, I've actually been surprised during these past months at how effective therapy has felt because of this, because I actually felt I really got a good rapport with my clients. And of course, I'm referring to the clients that I've only ever met online, like clients who reached out to me after Corona. Mm -hmm. So this, this has definitely been a surprise. Have you felt the connections with the clients that you had previously that have moved from in-person to online? Have you felt similar developments there as well? Yes, but it's hard to say, you know, because these were clients that I'd just known for a while and where the rapport already was really strong. So, you know, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if the sessions I've had since then, if the reason that they've felt more powerful has just been because of the time we've known each other, mm -hmm. the amount of time we've known each other, or if it's because now we get to do therapy online and from the comforts of our own home. Right. So it's actually hard for me to say whether we just, you know, got deeper because of the times that we're in. Mm. It's a bit it's a bit difficult to discern. It sounds like it's a, a kind of a net positive overall. You haven't noticed like a, a dip. Actually not. <laughs> no, actually I haven't. I mean, but I'm sure other therapists feel differently right. or have had other experiences yeah. but you know e even even the instances of uh, of of broken connection and f fallouts you know it, it we we've overcome it together yeah, yeah. <laughs> technology has been the common enemy and we've laughed about uh, it oh and, that's good you yeah, know yeah. we've been like like third time's a charm and then you know like in the middle of a stream of tears and it's it's been you know it's been good actually yeah that was johannes svensson co-founder of it's complicated and now i'd like to share an interview with barbara hilton who is a journalist based in copenhagen barbara was kind enough to go on record to share how she came to prefer seeing a therapist remotely over seeing one in person I've seen therapists in face-to-face -face before um, throughout my upbringing, and um, it's always been sort of a, a way we did things in my family. We all had a therapist that we've, you know, seen once in a while, and um, so I'm quite used to the face-to-face -face sessions as well. And I had one um, for a while when I lived in London, and then I moved back to Copenhagen, where I'm from, and um, I got this. I got this therapist that I'm seeing right now. She came highly recommended from a bunch of people that I knew. And uh, I didn't want distance to be an issue. 
I would rather have a therapist that I trusted and who could potentially understand me better than the one maybe nearby. So I tried. So she has an office outside Copenhagen where I live and uh, it wasn't really doable for me to travel every time I had a session. So she offered to do um, a Skype consultation and um, I said yes, but I was quite skeptical because I've before I was used to, you know, face-to-face sessions. And, uh, but I tried it with her and it's been, it's been really great. And it's been a surprisingly normal session, to be honest. You mentioned you had some reservations in the beginning. Uh, would you say now that the conveniences outweigh the drawbacks of not seeing a therapist in person? Well, I think it's just two very different things, I suppose. Um, for me, it, 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 yeah, it, it, it's not an issue that, well, yeah, the good thing sort of weighs up for, for whatever reservations I had in the beginning. And to start with, I thought it would be awkward and I thought I wouldn't be able to sort of give in to the conversation. You're sort of used to the waiting room or the room where you're in with your face-to-face therapist, if you're used to, to, to seeing one of those that's all very normal and that's the way you've done things for ages. I mean, now I can definitely see things that I miss about seeing a therapist therapist face-to-face, but when I started, the reservations I had were are different than the ones that I sort of have now, I guess, um, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, some of the reservation and skepticism that you expressed mirror what some critics of online therapy have said for quite some time that that without a face-to-face interaction in a controlled and consistent setting, the connection between the therapist and the client or patient cannot be as deep or that the awkwardness of a video call will hinder yeah. interactions. As you say, it's not that it's of a lesser quality, it's that it is something different entirely. Can you try and put your finger on what that is exactly? Mm. That's a good question. Um, I think the main thing that that comes to mind is how you integrate seeing a therapist in your daily life. It becomes way more natural and, and normal for me, at least. I mean, it's so effortless to go online and have a session. I like the fact that I sit in my living room. I'm safe and I feel comfortable in my living room. Or I sit at the office back room, <laughs> which I also feel safe and comfortable in. It's part of my everyday life, those locations. So seeing a therapist becomes way more normal where I I'm searching for a better word than normal but yeah integrated um while I still think that for some people maybe seeing a therapist can be a little if they're not used to it it can be you know jarring or or sort of in that way maybe being able to stay at home makes it a little less scary for them Hmm. The setting has been an important aspect of psychotherapy from the very beginning. Uh, I'm thinking back to the iconic image of Freud's sofa covered in rugs or even just about every movie or TV show with a scene in the therapist's mm-hmm. office, which is usually some you know, really gorgeous space with a library and teak furniture <laughs> and so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a stereotype in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like in your experience, moving therapy into the home and away from such a space has almost an, a normalizing effect would you say that the impact of therapy somehow lands differently when you're working at home? Of course, that's just me, but I feel like it does stick a little bit more. The therapist room is, is something that's kind of remote 
from your everyday life. It is something you sort of step into and you, and sometimes maybe you step out of your person or your character or whatever to enter this therapist room. Or some people might argue that you, you know, become closer to who you really are in, in the room with the therapist. But, but still, anyway, I, I think that the, the therapist's sort of clinic is, or space or whatever you want to call it is, is it is quite, quite remote. And it's almost like it makes it, it makes it easier to talk about things and how you want to act in your life or the, you mentioned breakthroughs that you have or things that you talk about your therapist. It's almost easier when you're in this, you call it neutral space, but also remote place where you don't have to deal with your everyday life. But when you have these conversations in your everyday life, in surroundings that's more closer to how you act or how you, where you be, where you walk around and where you, how you act when you're not in, in, in therapy, I think it's, it's more integrated. And for me, when you go to a therapist's place, it's sometimes easier to, you know, leave the work you do there. You leave it there. And then you exit and then you go home and then you can sort of forget about it a little bit. <laughs> but when you see a therapist in your own living room, it's not as easy to forget about it because you just had the conversation maybe a few hours ago when you're sitting in the same couch. And it depends on what you're working through and what your issues are. But I think it's beneficial for me and, and, and maybe for, for a lot of other people that you can't really escape the work that you have to do on on yourself, that you can escape it as easy. Huh, okay, so it sort of hangs in the room after the session is over. Yeah, I think it does. So what about that space? I mean, do you prepare the space that you're in leading up to the session? I mean, maybe you don't want the therapist to see the laundry on the sofa or you have to kick out your roommate or partner so they don't <laughs> hear what you're going to say through the door. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Of course there is. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't have a session with my family in at, at home. I only do it when I'm alone. So I, I, you sort of have to plan it a little bit. Um, and I do it where people can't really hear me because otherwise I would feel uncomfortable and I wouldn't be able to speak as freely. And I think that's very important. Maybe it can be compared to sort of the journey you have going from wherever you are and then to the therapist's place. There is a journey there. And I remember when I saw a, a therapist face-to-face -face that that journey was quite important for me. I, I lived in London at the time that I saw my, when I saw the therapist before, I had a, I had a little train journey. I went on the, on the tube, on the metro in London, and then it took maybe 40 minutes or something, 30 minutes. And I had a little walk at the, when I got up from the tube and then to her office. And that journey was incredibly important to me. And I really liked it. And I chose a therapist specifically in an area that was a little bit more sort of remote from where I, from where I lived. So I could have, you know, a little time getting into this space or this specific sort of um, getting into myself and getting into the work that I had to do. I really enjoyed that when I saw that my face-to-face -face therapist. And I do a similar thing now, actually, but just at home. And it doesn't take me 45 minutes. It takes me maybe 10 minutes. But I always sit. I choose a place to sit. I usually sit at the same spot. And I do get ready. And I make a, maybe a cup of tea. And I sit and I close my eyes and I sink into myself for a bit. And I tap into whatever feelings that I want to talk about. And I do that for a little while, I do that for maybe 10 minutes before the session starts. 
seeing a therapist online, I think that, I mean, for me, that's important. And I think that might be important for everybody, perhaps, to, to actually create that space around you. I wouldn't call it a neutral space, but I would call it a space that you make around yourself. And you can create that without walking into a different room. You can create it, I think, when you're at home as well. You, you can sort of make a bubble around yourself. I suppose it's true, um, whether at home or in person, that therapy tends to work best when you as a client commit to being present and are active in the process. You know, as long as the idea of online therapy has been around, there have been those who have cast their doubts on the efficacy of it. In light of your experience and in this conversation, what do you say to the critics? <laughs> um, well, for me, it works. Um, but I'm also quite experienced. I don't necessarily think that you have to be, but but I am. And I'm willing to do the work. I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong if you're not willing, but I'm saying that it, it depends on sort of the issues that you have, I think. That... If, if you need, if the therapist needs to take more, sort of use more tools, then of course it, you can't do that online the same way, but you can have a deep conversation and you can learn to, to, to tap into your feelings and, and, and your emotions and your thoughts. And you can do that from behind the screen because it is the voice of the therapist that for me, that's most important. And it's also, it's the work that you do yourself that's really important. And at least in the, in the kind of therapy that, that, I, that I'm used to, it's, it's sort of the idea that the therapist has to, they sort of have to be a, a midwife rather than, I mean, you have to birth whatever you need to, the, the process or, or the progress or the whatever. You, you need to do the work yourself, but they can help you facilitate it. And for that, I think it's actually more helpful when you sit at home. It forces you a little bit to do more work yourself. Um, and I think for me, that was that was good. Maybe in some cases better than, than seeing a therapist face-to-face. -face. Do you have any advice for any listeners who might be considering seeing an online therapist for the first time? When you live in a foreign country or you have very specific issues, it can be quite beneficial to be able to find a therapist that fits your specific needs. For example, if you live in a, in a city where they don't speak your language, you can see a therapist from home through online therapy. And if you have specific issues in terms of, I don't know, race, sexuality, you can find someone that, that suits you better. And I think that's important as well. Not all therapists are, are, are equipped to handle all kinds of problems. And I mean, if you live outside of the big city, there might not be that many therapists in town. Online therapies actually enables you to, to, to find one and, that's, and, you, and you don't have to be you know, held back because it's, it's far away. Um, you can actually you know, still see a, see a therapist that's suited to your specific issues. Something that really stood out to me from Barbara and I's conversation is the importance of preparing oneself for a session, whether that be during the commute to therapy or for a few minutes of focused self-preparation prior to an online session. For me, this calls to mind two fundamental principles, both in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, known as the frame, which refers to the fixed points of engagement, such as the time allotted to each session and the cost, and setting, which denotes the therapeutic relationship. 
Together, frame and setting ideally provide a safe and consistent space and time where a person can learn to be vulnerable and open. While online therapy has been around for a long time, the surge in popularity since COVID has confronted many with new questions about frame and setting for reasons you can easily imagine. Joining me now to discuss this is Alexander Dmitrievich, a Berlin-based psychoanalyst. Let's have a listen. Alexander, I want to talk about the psychoanalytic frame with you, which is a concept that has found its way into quite a number of different therapeutic practices within and outside of psychoanalysis, but it really has its home in psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory. Can you tell me about what the frame is and what it tries to achieve? Well, I would say there there are two levels. One is very easy to observe. One is about how we organize the conversation. And another one, I think, is about the frame that the analyst has to bear in his or her mind. So the first one in psychoanalysis classically is very strict. Sessions have a very well-defined duration. You never make them longer or shorter. The patient is on the couch. Patients pay for the sessions, and this has to be uh, somehow negotiated. Now, the next layer in this first level, I think, is what used to be the ideal in psychoanalysis for a very long time. The analyst should, for the most time, be silent, and then anonymous, distant, and neutral. At the same time, there is the expectation of the client or the patient to say whatever that comes to their mind. And this basic rule is extremely important. The patient should talk all the time, the analyst should be silent all the time. Now, this understanding of setting became challenged, I think, by the late 50s, early 60s, and then on, in many approaches that that are called intersubjective or interpersonal, where the presence of the analyst in the session is far more prominent than, than it used to be before, and where disclosure is uh, uh, far more acceptable. So setting becomes, in a way, more flexible. The importance of the setting is, in my opinion, very high because it shows you whether there are some changes. It shows you whether there are some deviations from what is usually going on. So following this, you can see that something is going on and that something needs to be explored. If the patient who is never late suddenly starts coming late to sessions, you can see that there is a field that needs to be explored because you have this, let me say, metronomic pace of your setting that shows you the deviation in tempo. If the patient who regularly talks about dreams and explores dreams all of a sudden has no dreams for two months, if the patient who otherwise was very regular starts forgetting to pay for sessions, you have the field of exploration and you can see 
how possibly the transference or something going on in the unconscious of the patient still cannot be expressed in a very articulate way, but it is approaching the surface. Now, the second level I mentioned is the setting in the mind of the analyst. And setting in the mind of the analyst also includes many important things. One, possibly the first one I should mention, the ethical standards. How you need to care about the patient and not expose the patient to any possible problems because of your unconscious or circumstances or anything that does not have anything to do with this person or protect the patient from him or herself in certain situations. Then the, the frame in your mind tells you that everything that goes on is analytic material. You described a loosening of rules since the beginning of psychoanalysis going from this very controlled Freudian setting to a much less uh, conservative idea of the frame decades later. But I can't, I can't help but think that even the most generous definitions of frame and setting could have anticipated COVID and the massive shift to online therapeutic work now. I'm curious in your own practice as a psychoanalyst, how have you dealt with the new and uncertain conditions that we're all subject to now? The reaction the world of psychoanalysis has is, I think, based on how you define what psychoanalysis is. So for a long time, Skype analysis was offered to many people in Japan, Korea, and China who wanted to become psychoanalysts and had to be trained by European or American analysts. The International Psychoanalytic Association does not acknowledge this as a regular training. And I think this shows that the definition of psychoanalysis by the international is conservative. That psychoanalysis is defined by walls, chairs, couches, and such stuff, and not by the mind frame, which can be analytic without the couch and the chair and the frequency. Now, when it comes to my own practice, I think there are major changes because a large part of the setting is now very difficult to control. People do not come to my office where things are far more predictable for me. Sometimes I have sessions with people who are in, in their car. Sometimes I work with persons who have three children. There is no way for them to talk about anything sensitive from inside the apartment. They cannot go to their offices anymore. And the only possibility for them is to sit in the car in front of the home. My question there is, there's, there's no way for me to control the setting. But the question is, will the session be helpful to the client in a certain way or not? For instance, one of the things that I'm personally very much bothered with Psychoanalysis, as I mentioned, sometimes contains long silences. Sometimes there is something to think about. Sometimes there is something to, to endure. And then the words will return later on when, when their time comes. 
But in online work, I'm bothered by the fact that I don't know sometimes whether it's a silence or the connection has broken. And even though this might not be the ideal, I'm deciding to offer something. I, I've felt this very acutely since the years of my training. Am I loyal to the method or am I loyal to the patient? Am I loyal to what my supervisor expects of me or am I loyal to what I feel or the patient is telling me explicitly would be most helpful for them? So is this kind of work ideal? No, I don't think it is. But that does not bother me so much as long as there are clients who find this helpful. And to me, that is the more important loyalty. This last segment I'd like to play for you now is not an interview, but a story submitted by Daria Kirilova. Prior to COVID, Daria has been seeing a therapist in person to help her address PTSD symptoms following two traumatic events. As her sessions moved from online, she found the nature and scope of the issues tackled in her therapy began to change. Without spoiling details, I now share with you Daria's story. Two and a half years ago, I was on a trip in a foreign country and was robbed at gunpoint, leaving me with no money and no identification. And a week and a half later, there was an earthquake. By the time I'd moved to Berlin, I figured out I had post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD which meant that things that were effortless to me before now became this sort of minefield of triggers that I had to navigate on a daily basis, making it quite hard for me to deal with normal things. So simple things like a man on public transport or a scene in a TV show would trigger panic attacks and I'd have mood swings and trouble sleeping and be hypervigilant, always on edge, get scared really easily. And that meant that my nervous system was working overtime and I wasn't myself. At home, at work, on the street, with colleagues, with friends, with loved ones. And I just got to the point where I didn't know how to cope. And when eventually it became too much, I decided to go to therapy. Before COVID, my sessions focused on untying this complicated knot of everything associated with trauma and all the memories, the thoughts, the emotions, the sensations, the events that come with it. And we covered a lot of things that I've never discussed in depth with anyone else in my life, from what goes on in my head during a panic attack to, you know, the hidden feelings of shame and anger and fear I was feeling and suppressing and even things like lifelong insecurities and specific episodes from childhood. Every week I would go to my therapist's office, I'd go in and feel fairly okay and leave having just been on this hour-long emotional roller coaster and literally cried off all my mascara. I would sometimes have an emotional hangover that would last for hours or, or even days. At the same time my therapist's office became this special safe space for me to be at my most vulnerable and this place where just by physically being there I would find it a lot easier to put whatever else was going on to the side 
and work through my issues. And I started seeing progress. With COVID, we switched to online sessions, which have felt quite different for, for various reasons. And of course, the main one was the location. So my home is obviously a different space than my therapist's office, and I feel differently being there. A big upside of that was not having to travel to the appointment. So that meant I could wake up later, make my own coffee, settle down in my favorite chair and feel at home. And I'd feel more refreshed and calm coming into the sessions. The downside is that I'd often feel less present. Not being in that special room, sitting with my phone away and being opposite in the same space, opposite this living, breathing person in whom I confide. Instead, I was in front of my computer, <laughs> looking at this pixelated image of a person while my boyfriend is in the other room, may or may not hear me, and all the other parts of my life, like work or whatever it is, are scattered across the different tabs of my browser, you know, my phone has notifications next to me, and all of this stuff is competing for my attention. At the beginning of our video sessions, it take some time for me to mentally detach from the technology aspect. So, you know, disabling the notifications, closing the tabs, um, but also, you know, things like problems with connections or lagging sound. But there's one way in which even the technical fails had their own upsides. So with everyone streaming a lot more, a few times when the software or connection failed, we had to improvise and do the sessions over the phone instead of video. And it was as if communicating through only sound lifted a lot of the other sensory distractions. And because I often get quite self-conscious when talking about, you know, tender or personal topics, even in front of someone I trust, knowing that someone isn't looking at me, but just listening and holding space is actually quite comforting. And it, for me, it really lowers the volume of the self-conscious thoughts that pop up during therapy. Another thing that changed with the transition to online over COVID are the actual things that we talk about. So for example, the tendency to procrastinate, to doubt myself, to criticize myself and creative blocks or worrying about money. They've always been there and I've always wanted to do something about them and work on them, but because they were never a major threat to my mental well-being, I'd always prioritize other things. Given the challenges we faced with doing trauma-focused therapy online, we moved to working with these other topics. And honestly, it's felt really great to finally pay some attention to things I've pushed off to the side and learn to figure out better ways of dealing with them. And it's sort of a more subtle personal growth that I've been able to experience. To give a physical metaphor, working on PTSD is sort of like um, injuring your spine in a car accident and having to heal it. But the other topics we worked on felt more like learning to have a better posture so your back doesn't hurt. And both are really valuable to me in terms of my mental health and in terms of the personal growth I've been able to experience. Switching from one type of therapy to another has definitely felt like discovering a new chapter in my own therapy journey.
we've now reached the conclusion of this episode of It's Complicated. You're probably noticing that the sound in the background has moved from birds chirping to frogs. That's because I'm jumping back in a few hours later to finish up this segment, and it's nighttime here. Before we wrap this one up, I have a story that I would like to share, because it's, it's, just, it's just too relevant not to. So in the second interview that I played with Barbara Hilton about her experience of seeing an online therapist, she mentioned that seeing a therapist that speaks your language is really important, maybe more important than seeing a therapist in person. I can particularly relate to this, and that's why I'm going to tell you this story. So when I moved to Berlin a few years ago, I had been seeing a therapist in person back home. I had a really great rapport with that therapist, and we had not actually ever even considered working online together. But I didn't have the idea that moving to Berlin would be particularly difficult. I mean, after all, I'm a flexible, adaptable person. Why should it be so hard? But as I discovered that a lot of people discover when they move to new countries, it's really difficult to find yourself in a totally new culture where you don't speak the language, you don't understand even how to go to the post office. Your first times going to a grocery store are going to be extremely overwhelming because you don't know what to buy, you don't know what you're looking at. You don't even know the difference between shampoo and conditioner, looking at the bottles on the shelves. And all of these little things over time amount to a lot of stress, way more than I had anticipated. And a few months into being in Berlin, I was ready to see another therapist. But of course, this was before It's Complicated existed. And let me tell you, there is a good reason that It's Complicated was invented. After weeks of sending tons of emails and getting very few responses, I finally found a therapist, but by that time, I had really reached my wit's end. When the day came to finally have my first session, I had had a particularly trying week. So when the moment came where I was finally sitting in the chair across from the therapist in the room, I was so relieved and so overwhelmed that when she asked why I was interested in seeing a therapist, I started in on a stream of consciousness that didn't stop for about 30 minutes. And when finally I realized that I had been talking probably a little too much and the session might actually be ending soon, I looked up, face covered in tears, feeling a bit silly and a little embarrassed. And the therapist looked up at me with a bit of a surprised look on her face and after a moment she said, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, my, my English, it isn't very good. You've heard me say it before and you'll hear me say it again. It's Complicated is a web directory dedicated to helping you find the right therapist. Whether you need a Spanish speaking Gestalt therapist, an American sex and couples counselor, or a German Jungian analyst, it's Complicated offers a safe space to connect you with a practitioner. And don't forget, if you've made it to this point in the show and you just cannot get enough of that sweet, sweet psychological content, please visit us on our blog at blog.complicated.life where there is more than enough for you. Maybe not more than enough, but there is a lot for you to quench your thirst for knowledge. There are more podcast episodes that you can find links to there. There are tons of articles. I just read a particularly great one by Giulietta Fiorentino called Closer to Your Own Idea of Good, which is about Lacan's idea of the relative nature of good and evil, and the importance of questioning our most fundamental assumptions about such basic but important notions. And if there's any opportunity that you can take for someone to explain Lacan to you in an easy-to-understand way, I highly recommend you take it, because it's not easy stuff. This is It's Complicated. I'm Reese Cox, and I want to thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>